episode number six. Hello, friends. This is the Expected Returns Podcast. My name is Stephen Lutman. I'm a real estate investor and broker in the capital region of New York State. If this happens to be your first time checking out the show, welcome. Topics here center around real estate. However, we'll also touch on financial markets and any macroeconomic data that affects housing. If there are ideas or concepts you'd like discussed on the show, don't be shy. Email Stephen at sjlincoln.com or DM on Instagram, sjlincolnrealty. And it can be either a conversation for the show or just a secret between you and me. But either way, appreciate any suggestions for content ideas. So please reach out. And if you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder what Steve actually looks like. Well, prepare to be disappointed because the YouTube version of this show now includes actual video. I plan on putting out a bunch of video content this year, so subscribe now. Make sure you don't miss anything. The channel at the moment is pretty small, but once you're on the platform, search for SJ Lincoln Realty. Eventually, you'll stumble across it. But uh, yeah, stay tuned and hopefully a bunch of more content to follow. Real quick plug. The newsletter went out to subscribers within the past 24 hours. Be sure to sign up at sjlincoln.com join. This is free. I should be charging you, but I'm not. So hurry up before I change my mind. Or if you just want to give it a glance before any type of a commitment, sjlincoln.com newsletter. Now let's get to the show. A giant pet peeve of mine. I can't tell you the number of times I'll be watching the news or some kind of a podcast and they're covering a story with a correspondent or some type of special contributor and they start using these big words or abbreviations and I'm instantly lost. Now, these people most likely have all of the answers that I'm looking for, but it doesn't matter because they're not presenting the information in a way for the general public to really gain anything from it. I never ever want this show to be like that. This is geared very much as for the people, not professionals. Now that's not to say we won't ever try to tackle some complex concepts, but the goal is to do so in a way where you can then take the information and explain it to a friend. So with that said, I thought it would be helpful to run through some common phrases and abbreviations that tie in with finance, specifically real estate. And that way you will never have to feel like anyone's trying to talk over your head. A common theme on this show is the importance of having your financing lined up prior to home shopping. Pre-approval and pre-qualification are two terms that frequently get used, sometimes interchangeably, but they are not the same thing. So a pre-qualification you can think of as something, it's a non-binding estimate based, and this is the important part, solely on information provided by the borrower, so you, to the lender. So you walk into the bank and say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Lender, I make $5,000 a month. I pay $200 on student loans, $300 on a car payment. Based on this information, you tell me how much of a mortgage loan would I qualify for? A pre-approval, on the other hand, is going to be much more, we'll say, intrusive. You'll be asked to provide pay stubs, tax returns, and consent to having your credit pulled. Which one should you do? Almost always the answer is get the pre-approval. 
it's significant first for your own peace of mind to have something concrete from your lender, even more important so that agents like myself know to take you seriously and that you're able to close on a sale. But most importantly, so that the seller of the home that you want to buy wants to accept your offer. If you've listened to episodes one through five, you know the importance given how competitive the market is today to get the pre-approval. It's essentially table stakes today. No offer should be submitted really without one. Is a pre-qualification ever appropriate? The only time I can really think of is if you're brand new to finance, maybe you've never gone through the process of getting a loan before, it can be a very helpful learning experience. First of all, they're free, so it's not going to cost you anything. It's not binding, so you're not going to be required to work with this lender going forward if you choose not to. And as opposed to the pre-approval, which is going to pull your credit, there's no ding to your credit score with a pre-qualification. So as a learning tool, I would say certainly do it. However, if you're actively touring properties, if you're ready to pull the trigger, get the pre-approval. APR versus APY, annual percentage rate and annual percentage yield. Now, this is strictly from a borrowing perspective. If you're depositing money at a bank, it's a bit different. But when it comes to obtaining a mortgage, you call your bank and the loan originator says they can do 3.75 APY, 3.8% APR. Well, wait, which one am I getting? Why are there two separate rates? The interest rate you're going to be paying on is the APY, annual percentage yield. The APR in our example was five basis points higher. And just a quick side tangent. So when we say basis points, it's just another way of talking about rates. So if something increases 100 basis points, it means it went up one full percent. If something goes down 50 basis points, that's half a percentage point lower. So the APR is the APY plus some of the nonsense that banks charge you to facilitate the loan. Things like origination fees, maybe you're buying points. The moral of the story here is when you're shopping for your loan, make sure you're comparing apples to apples. If one bank quotes you the APY, make sure the next quote you get is also APY. What we want to avoid is comparing APR versus APY. Own to value, LTV, is the amount of equity, your money, needed in relation to the lender's money. For example, if a house appraises for $200,000 and your bank says they're willing to lend 90% loan to value, it means they'll be dishing out $180,000 and you're on the hook for the remaining 10%, so $20,000. FHA is a common loan product that offers the ability for borrowers to put down 3.5%. The other way of saying that is 96.5% loan to value. Next, let's go ahead and talk about FHA. Federal Housing Administration. And they are overseen by HUD. So we're talking about the federal government, Washington, D.C., 
here's the misnomer when it comes to FHA. The government is not issuing these loans. This is not taxpayer money. What FHA does is outline specific criteria that they want borrowers to meet. So we're talking about income, credit scores, et cetera, and says to lenders, if you originate loans that match the criteria we're looking for, we're going to go ahead and insure you against losses should down the road the borrower default, they stop making payments. Why does the federal government get involved in housing? They would say there needs to be a mechanism to help underserved communities enter the ranks of homeowners. The spread between white and black homeownership today is something like 30%. So by essentially backstopping bank losses, it allows lenders to offer products with lower credit scores, lower down payment requirements, without asking them to take on an inordinate amount of risk. What I would say is that this is at least partially true. However, the other part of the equation is that the federal government is very, very greedy. Throughout American history, there has not been a better vehicle for ordinary citizens like you and me to generate wealth than by owning a home. The richer you become, the more you're able to spend. And the more you're able to spend, the more the government is able to tax you. High home ownership rates are excellent for the coffers of municipalities. Certainly what FHA is doing is a wonderful thing, helping groups previously left behind become homeowners. But it's not strictly a philanthropic venture by the government. There's something certainly in it for them as well. Last one for today, and it's something that's been certainly getting a lot of exposure recently, is inflation, which is just a fancy way of saying, in terms of a percentage, how much more expensive is something today versus an earlier point in time? So you hear on the news, inflation up 7%. Well, what exactly went up 7%? Not everything went up exactly 7%. Used car prices increased 40% this year. Clothing, 5%. What they're referring to is the CPI, Consumer Price Index. And this is put out monthly by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The CPI tracks a basket of common household goods, so things that you and I are buying on a monthly basis, food, shelter, energy, and compares that basket to different points historically. Now, it's worth noting that during times of high inflation, it's typical for wage growth to also be strong, which is actually something we're encountering today. Let's say the increase in CPI is 7%, but salaries have also increased 4%. The net effect of the inflation is really 3%. There's an ongoing argument amongst economists that the CPI isn't nuanced enough because changes within that basket of goods we just discussed don't impact all families in the same way. For example, Let's say apparel and recreation saw a 10% increase in price. Well, that's going to disproportionately impact middle and upper income families as they're the ones more likely to be spending on these types of goods. On the flip side, when you see energy costs spike, 
This has an overweight impact on lower income households because heating of your house takes up a larger slice of your whole economic pie for that particular demographic. Hopefully you got something out of that segment. If so, let me know and we can look to bring it back in a couple weeks. Next, we'll pivot to a few items in the news, but first a quick word from today's show sponsor, SJ Lincoln Realty, helping home buyers and sellers throughout the capital region, headquartered right in the village of Balsam Spa. I've been an investor for the better part of a decade and operate the office here as the licensed real estate broker. If you'd like to connect, my email address is stephen at sjlincoln.com. Or reach out on social media, SJ Lincoln Realty, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or visit the website, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Again, you can email Stephen at sjlincoln.com, connect with us on social media, SJ Lincoln Realty, or visit sjlincoln.com slash book a call. And now back to the show. Where I'd like to go next should be no big surprise as it's all everyone is talking about at the moment and that's the russian invasion of its southwestern neighbor ukraine now to be clear this conversation is going to be focused solely on understanding sanctions and their economic fallout not the morality of war or any type of a deep dive on the history of the soviet union there are plenty of folks out there more talented than myself to take on something like that but when you live in a global economy, which we do, we are all connected, whether you like it or not. So where we were before the conflict began, Russia is the world's 11th largest economy based on GDP at $1.5 trillion. That's just behind folks like South Korea and Canada, which I found a bit surprising. For reference, the U.S. economy is roughly 15 times larger at $21 trillion. Daily international transactions, so these are folks buying and selling with Russia, was $46 billion daily last year, 80% of which being transacted in U.S. dollars. So let's put a pin in that for a moment. The European Union relied on Russia for almost half of its gas in 2020 and a quarter of its oil. That's where we started. Now let's fast forward to the end of February. War is broken out. Japan, United States, EU, all interested in aiding Ukraine without directly getting pulled into the conflict. This is what gets us Executive Order 1424 levying economic sanctions upon Russia that is going to make their lives very unpleasant. So their two largest banks, VTB and Sparebank, with a brief exception for medical, energy, and farming transactions, but they are blocked from conducting any type of banking transaction using the U.S. dollar. On top of that, 13 enterprises with ties to the Kremlin. So their economy is structured a little bit differently than ours, where we have, let's say, ExxonMobil, a publicly traded oil and gas company. They have publicly traded companies as well, but oftentimes they tie directly back to those who are politically in power in Russia. 
So 13 of those type of enterprises are unable to raise any type of debt or equity, which is essentially putting a freeze on any type of business activity. How is this possible? What are the physical mechanics behind blocking another country? This isn't like the federal government going after New York State. This is an entirely different nation. How can we just essentially shut them off? It all has something to do with SWIFT, not Taylor. Maybe we need her. But the Society for Worldwide Interbank Telecommunications. If you write a check from, say, your Bank of America checking account to pay for an auto loan at Trusco Bank, nobody is physically carrying that $300 from B of A to Trusco. It's essentially a click of a mouse between the two institutions. That's SWIFT. When the former sanctions we discussed proved not to be enough of a deterrent, the next move was for Russia to be removed entirely from SWIFT. And without access to SWIFT, multiply that by an entire country, you can clearly see how damaging that can be for a country of north of 100 million people not to have access to banking. Let's now jump to where we are today. One American dollar can purchase roughly 125 Russian rubles, whereas four weeks ago, it would get you 75, meaning the ruble has lost about 40% of its value in just a month. There's currently a run on banks where citizens there are panic withdrawing their money because A, their bank could legitimately go out of business, and B, if this devaluation is going to continue, we need to figure out how to get this, this being rubles, exchanged into something more stable. But old Vlad Putin beat him to the punch because he's blocking any type of foreign exchange And you can get your hands on some rubles, but he's limiting withdrawals on that front too. On top of that, borrowing rates have been bumped all the way up to 20%. Now, why does that matter? Because if your banks are limited on funds, the last thing you want to do is lend out a bunch of money because you don't know how much you're going to have left in reserves. It becomes a lot less attractive If I run a business in Russia and I'm looking to finance an expansion of the factory, if my borrowing costs are going to be 20%, I'm a lot less inclined (laughs) to put an application for, for mortgage financing. So rates up mean less borrowing, which equates to more funds on hand, which they are going to need. And most recently, the Biden administration has said that the United States is going to hold off any future purchase of Russian oil and gas which is fine, Um, but the percent that we purchase, a very small portion of that actually comes from Russia. Where the squeeze is really gonna happen is if countries like England, France, Italy, they jump on board with us as well. They're much more heavily dependent upon Russian oil and gas than we are, which is being discussed. So that's a real possibility. How they would then find an alternative, I mean, granted we are in still the winter, they need to heat their homes. So what alternative do they have? 
that's going to be a little bit dicey, um, but it's certainly being explored. So Russia is in a bit of a pickle. They have a massive, massive problem on their hands. They've been locked out of the global financial system. Their currency is cratering. And outside of maybe China, no one is excited to purchase their biggest export. Not a fun time to be Vlad Putin. Some heavier topics on the show this week for sure. So let's wrap up with something a bit more lighthearted. There is a horse from New York named Un Ojo. Now, for my Spanish-speaking listeners, you'll know this translates to an eye. Because after an accident as a one-year-old, you guessed it, my man has one eye. But despite this, he's still out there having a great time running around. And on February 26th, entered the Rebel Stakes, a qualifier for the Kentucky Derby, at odds of 75 to 1. Because he has one eye. And here's the call. Ethereal Road and Kavad coming to the wire. Ethereal Road has the lead. Kavad, Un Ojo to the inside. Ethereal Road, a final charge from Un Ojo. So if you're having a bad day or think there's something out there that you want to do but you just can't do it, think of Un Ojo with one eye, will be running in the Kentucky Derby. That's it for today. As always, thank you for listening. This is now the time of the show where I lean on you, the listener. If you found this valuable and have a real estate-related need or maybe know of someone who does, let's have a conversation. Steven at sjlincoln.com. That's my email address or sjlincoln.com slash book a call. If that's just not doable, the next best thing you can do is send this episode to a friend or a family member, someone you think might benefit. Stephen at sjlincoln.com, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Thanks for your support. We'll talk again soon.